0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bad Table Talk. I'm your host, Oliver Niehaus, and a while back I created a three-part series surrounding the issue of abortion. And since then, a group called Pro-Life Michigan has reached out to me and asked if I would like to participate in a debate. So that will be coming either later this month or sometime next, but I thought I'd record the position and the arguments I will be making. I have no desire to gatekeep this information as I am confident this argument will hold up to scrutiny. So without further ado, please enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Specifically, thank you to Trevor, Kristen, and everyone else at Pro-Life Michigan for allowing me the opportunity to come and participate in what will hopefully be a productive exchange of ideas. I first want to say that I admire your passion and dedication to fighting for a cause that you truly believe in. I'm not one of those abortion advocates who hate those on the other side of this conversation. If you're a history buff like I am or just watched the musical Hamilton, hopefully both, You'll recall the election of 1800, considered by many as one of the most consequential elections in American history. A a very brief summary, for those of you who don't know a whole lot about it, it was between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. And the election resulted in a tie, and when that happens, the vote goes to the House of Representatives. And they voted 14 times, and it resulted in a stalemate each and every time. That was until Hamilton intervened. To put it lightly, Hamilton and Jefferson weren't exactly best friends. They disagreed on practically everything. However, in the election of 1800, Hamilton ended up swaying a few of his friends in the house to vote for Jefferson to break the stalemate, and justified his choice by saying this, Jefferson has principles, Burr has none. While I personally disagree with your position fervently, I undoubtedly appreciate and would rather have an informed group of people that disagree with me than an uninformed group, the typical pro-choice crowd if I may be blunt, that happens to agree with me. So as I'm sure you're aware, I'm here to talk about abortion, not history as fun as that would be. So before we get into this discussion, I want to clarify that if you're sitting here right now, as I'm sure many of you are, thinking to yourself, I could never support the intentional killing of an innocent human being, hey, I hear you, because that used to be me. I indeed used to be pro-life and followed the arguments of Klusendorf and Brahm, as I'm sure many of you do as well. So for my case today, I will be accepting the premise that the fetus is a person from conception with the equal right to life as you and me. However, the right to life does not give you the right to use someone else's body to survive. I'm going to now use a thought experiment, similar to the violinist thought experiment by philosopher Judith Jarvis-Thompson, but modify it to a different scenario to address what I believe to be the largest flaw with such a scenario, which is the responsibility objection. Here's the scenario. You're racing your car on the highway. You enjoy driving fast, but acknowledge the fact that there are inherent consequences with your decision to drive fast, one being crashing into another car and injuring those in the other vehicle. You decide to drive fast and reckless anyways because, well, it feels good in the moment and unfortunately you crash into someone, severely injuring them, and causing them to need a bone marrow transplant in order to survive. You are the only available donor. Without your bone marrow, they will die. The question becomes, can the state force you to use your bone marrow to save the life of the other person, whose current state of dependence is directly a result of your reckless action? You may be starting to see the parallel I'm making with pregnancy, and this gets out of the way the most powerful objection, in my opinion, to bodily rights arguments, which is the responsibility objection. So to clarify, just like the mother is the reason the fetus is dependent on her for survival, in the majority of cases excluding rape, so is the reckless driver the reason the injured person is dependent on their body for survival. So I'm going to operate off of the idea that right now you don't think the driver should be legally required to donate their bone marrow to the other person for survival. And if you do think so, well, you just saved me a lot of time, and we'll get to that later. I do want to make it clear, though. I'm talking about a legal obligation, not a moral one. The question for this debate was should abortion remain legal, not the morality of the action itself. I think everyone here, or at least I hope everyone here, agrees that if you engage in an action that you know is a high probability of someone being reliant on your body for survival, you have a very strong moral obligation to provide such support. However, whether or not the state should force you definitely adds another level of complexity to this discussion. So for now, let's say that you answer that the state shouldn't force you to, by law, donate your bone marrow to save the other person. If you're pro-life, which I imagine many of you here are, I doubt that rocks your position very much as you find this car crash situation to be much different than pregnancy and abortion, which is true. However, thought experiments will always have differences, that is why they're thought experiments, but it's not important just to point out differences, but to prove why those differences are morally relevant. So there are five major objections to bodily rights arguments. Just like philosopher Stephen Schwartz created the SLED acronym, being size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, for the four major differences between the fetus you once were and the person you are right now, I created an acronym to help you remember the five major objections to bodily rights arguments, and that acronym is the word ROCKS. So I'll go through all of these objections in detail in a second, but just to name the acronym first so you know what the letters stand for, the R stands for Responsibility Objection, the O stands for organ use objection, the C stands for consent objection, or commonly known as the willingness or tacit consent objection, the K stands for killing versus letting die objection, also known as intending versus foreseeing, or the doctrine of double effect as referred to by Catholic philosopher Thomas Aquinas, if you're familiar with him, and the last letter, S, stands for stranger versus offspring objection. So let's start off with the first one, which I believe is the strongest, which is the responsibility objection. There are indeed critiques to this, but I didn't find many of them appealing, and thus I built in the responsibility aspect into my scenario, being that you are responsible for the person needing your body to survive by crashing your car into them because you were reckless. So it's not as much a critique of my scenario, but it's rather a very common one that is made against Thompson's violinist thought experiment, and is also absent in the cases of rape, so that's important to note. However, despite being the strongest objection, I'm going to assume for sake of discussion that it's not enough on its own, as you probably objected to the idea that the state should force the person to donate their bone marrow solely on the basis that they were responsible for putting someone in a state of dependence. So that's the first objection, which I'm not going to discuss in depth, but I rather built it into my scenario, so if you'd like to read more about the philosophical counter to the responsibility objection, I've sent it to Trevor and Kristen, and I'm sure they'd be more than happy to send it to you. And because this is a podcast as recorded beforehand, it will be linked in the notes below. So let's leave that one there for now. The second objection, I'm going to do these a little bit out of order because it's easy to discuss them in a different order than the acronym, but the one I will discuss now is the stranger versus offspring objection. This one can be pretty easily avoided by changing the person you hit with your car to being your own child, but what's important as well is to distinguish between the different types of parental relationships. There's the obvious clear-cut biological definition, which states that if your egg or sperm were used in the creation of a child, then a biological-parental relationship exists. But do you really believe that a biological, parental, bodily obligation exists? That might be hard to understand, so I'll say it again slower. Do you really believe that a biological, parental, bodily obligation exists? For example, let's say that some of Trevor's sperm is taken without his knowledge and is used to create a child via in vitro fertilization. And that child is born, but Trevor doesn't ever meet that child until he's 45 years old, when he's informed that, unfortunately, the child he never knew he had needs a bone marrow transplant to survive. Should the state force Trevor to donate his bone marrow to save that child that is biologically his, and therefore you would claim to which he has a biological parental obligation? I would assume the answer is no, as he's never met this child in his entire life and has had no such meaningful relationship with them. However, there's another type of parental relationship, which is a custodial parental relationship. This just means that you are the custodial guardian of a child. Very often, being when you're raised by your biological parents, both a biological and custodial relationship exists. But let's assume Trevor and his wife Kristen adopt a child shortly after birth and raise this child for years. This wouldn't be a biological parental relationship, but rather a custodial parental relationship. Would Trevor or Kristen have a bodily obligation? Or in other words, could the state force them to donate bone marrow to save that child should a scenario arise where that child needed a bone marrow transplant to survive? The answer legally would still be no, but I see how you could make a stronger moral argument as to why there's more of an ethical dilemma in this situation, rather than the last, where Trevor merely had a biological relationship to a child he never met. Now, I agree that Trevor would be a terrible human being, and I definitely think I can safely say that Trevor would probably donate the bone marrow, but the question is, legally can he be obligated, or more straightforward, should he be legally? Some of you may be thinking yes, and guess what, I actually kind of agree. However, that scenario doesn't exactly mirror pregnancy, and that comes back to the different types of parental relationships that exist. The scenario I just described to you was a solely custodial one, where Trevor and Kristen merely adopted the child and had no biological relationship to the child at all. However, the relationship between a woman and the fetus is solely biological. And it seems like you most likely agree that a biological relationship alone is not grounds to force Trevor to donate his bone marrow to the child that was created via in vitro fertilization without his knowledge that he meets decades later. That is the analogous example to pregnancy due to the fact that, as I said, the relationship between the mother and the fetus is solely biological. So in order to say that the relationship between the mother and the fetus is grounds for the state to force the mother to use her body to sustain the life of the fetus, you would also have to say that Trevor must be forced by the state to donate his bone marrow to save the life of the biological child created without his knowledge via in vitro fertilization that he meets decades later and needs a bone marrow transplant to survive. I'd imagine that's something pretty tough to concede. The next objection is the consent objection, or more commonly known as the willingness or tacit consent objection, which states that since the woman willingly engaged in sex, that she willingly allowed the fetus to be dependent on her, and thus consented to the fetus using her body. There is a definite distinction between consenting and accepting, and despite often being used interchangeably, there needs to be a distinction between the two. For instance, many people often say that consent to sex is consent to pregnancy, and this is just a misuse of the word consent. You consent to actions and accept that there are certain outcomes that come with such actions. You cannot consent to outcomes themselves. The question is whether or not you have a responsibility for those outcomes, which goes back to the responsibility objection which I addressed earlier. But the tacit consent idea conflates consenting to sex with automatically consenting to the legal responsibility of pregnancy and being legally obligated to carrying that pregnancy for nine months. However, let's say for sake of argument that you openly consent to the child using your uterus— That seems odd, but for sake of argument, you just tell the whole world that you love being pregnant and can't wait to be a mother. Can you change your mind? Does you consenting to allow that fetus to use your body at a certain time mean you automatically consent for nine months? It seems odd to say that if we let someone be dependent on our body for a brief period of time, that they automatically have a right to use our body as long as they need, correct? Let's say Trevor willingly agrees to donate the bone marrow to his long-lost son, and for sake of argument, the procedure for donation will take nine months. How convenient. However, a month or so in, Trevor begins to feel serious pain and thus desires to disconnect. Should he be allowed to do so? Or should the state force him to stay connected to his biological long-lost son just because he willingly agreed to at a period of time? It seems inhumane to force him to do that and endure the pain and suffering he is facing just because he willingly agreed to do so at one point. Therefore, just because the act of sex is willing, it doesn't give the fetus an automatic right to the mother's body. There's one more objection under this same realm, and I didn't give it its own letter because, well, one, it didn't fit well into the word rocks, but mostly it just fits well as a subset of consent and responsibility, and that is that since the woman is responsible for creating the fetus, or in other words, is responsible for its current state of existence, that therefore the fetus has a right to her body. I find this argument to be odd and not logically consistent in multiple ways. For example, let's say I'm having lunch with my friend at my house, just the two of us, and he starts choking, and let's assume that if I don't give him the Heimlich, he will die. I therefore give him the Heimlich and save his life. Therefore, for the rest of his life, his current existence will be a result of my action to save his life. Therefore, would you say that if in 20 years he needs a bone marrow transplant that I should be required by law to give it to him? I think the answer is an obvious and resounding no. Therefore, I don't see how the idea that because the mother is the reason for the fetus's existence somehow gives the fetus the right to use the mother's body. So, all in all, the consent and willingness objection doesn't seem to hold under scrutiny either. The next objection is the killing versus letting die objection. This goes to the major premises of the syllogism that many pro-lifers like Scott Klusendorf use, being that premise 1, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, premise 2, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, and conclusion, therefore it's wrong. I take issue with both premises. Let's discuss the first premise, which is that it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Is premise 1 universally true? Is it always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings? That may seem like a quick yes to you, but I want to lay out a famous thought experiment, often called the trolley problem. It goes as follows. You are standing out in a field, and you see a trolley speeding down tracks headed towards a fork. On the left part of the fork, there are five people tied to the tracks, and on the right, there is one. You are standing next to a lever that will switch the direction of the trolley tracks. If you do nothing, the trolley will naturally go to the left and kill the five people. However, if you pull the lever, it will go to the right and kill just one person. What do you think you should do? The answer to me seems simple. Pull the lever to minimize the number of casualties. However, by pulling the lever, you are intentionally causing the death of one person versus letting five people die. So is it always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being? I think the above experiment provides an adequate example of why it may not be. Let's apply this to abortion. For example, if a woman is pregnant, and you know for 100% certainty, obviously that's not realistic, but this is a thought experiment, so that's why it's an absolute claim, you're 100% certain that during the process of giving birth, the mother will go into cardiac arrest and die. This is inevitable. You cannot avoid it. However, in this example, the fetus will survive. Would you support aborting the fetus to save the life of the mother? Let's say that you know from the moment of conception that the mother would inevitably die in the process of childbirth. Would you support a simple pill abortion or even the use of Plan B which can expel a recently fertilized embryo by preventing it from attaching to the uterine lining? Consider that scenario. I'll get to premise two in a second because I take issue with the idea that one, the fact that abortion is always the intentional killing of an innocent human being is true or that it's relevant, but for sake of the point I'm making, would you support abortion or as you would say, the intentional killing of an innocent human being to save the life of the mother? Some of you may say yes and some of you may say no. For those who said yes, you already proved the flaw with premise one of the syllogism. There are certain circumstances in which intentionally killing an innocent human being would not just be morally permissible, but morally expected, in this instance, to save the mother's life. For those who answered no, that we can't intentionally kill the fetus to save the life of the mother, I ask that we modify the scenario. Now not only will the mother die, but also the child. Now can we intentionally kill the fetus to save the mother? I assume all of you agree with the scenario, as it mirrors what is called an ectopic pregnancy. Now, if there are any of you who think that we shouldn't abort the fetus in the second scenario, if there are any, I hope not, but if that's the case, I'll respond exactly how Klusendorf responds to philosopher Peter Singer, who supports infanticide in certain cases, and I quote, While I believe your conclusion is truly barbaric, I cannot help but appreciate your consistency. So back to ectopic pregnancies, which if you aren't aware is when the fertilized egg gets stuck in the fallopian tube and begins to grow there. And if it isn't removed, it will burst the fallopian tube and the mother will hemorrhage to death if not treated. So by removing the fertilized egg, are you not intentionally killing it? Even if you are intending to save the life of the mother, you are still killing the fetus as a direct result of your action, right? And if you object there, make it the birth scenario. The mother will go into cardiac arrest and die, and the fetus would not survive. She is about to go into labor. I understand this isn't realistic, but for sake of the thought experiment, would you support intentionally killing the fetus if you could make the absolute claim that both the mother and the child will die? Or would you rather let both die than actively kill one of them to save the mother? It's overwhelmingly likely that you do support killing the fetus in at least one of those two scenarios, if not both. Therefore, can we truly say that it's always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings? An objection I have heard, and not one that is very common, but regardless, is the argument that if the fetus poses a threat to the mother, then it is no longer innocent, and thus removing it by intentionally killing it would be justified. But then I have to object and say by what metric do you constitute posing a threat? If we're being intellectually honest, the process of pregnancy, and especially birth, always pose a threat to the mother's life. Albeit low as it is, it's still a threat. So therefore, what is the line where the fetus becomes enough of a threat where we would be justified in killing it? So in summary, premise 1 isn't correct, at least not absolutely in every instance, as I'm sure you acknowledge that in at least one of the two scenarios, it wouldn't be wrong to intentionally kill the fetus to save the life of the mother. And if you agreed that the most moral decision would be to pull the lever and save the people in the trolley scenario, then that's true in other scenarios as well. So let's move on to premise 2 now of his syllogism, which is that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. At best, this premise is incomplete. There are many different types of abortions, some such as vacuum and dismemberment abortions that directly kill the fetus before removing it from the uterus, but there are also abortions such as dilation and evacuation abortions or hysterotomies or things of the sort that remove the fetus alive and intact from the mother, and thus it dies often due to being underdeveloped. This premise is intellectually dishonest. As Klusendorf likes to do when prompted with the question of abortion in the cases of rape, for sake of argument, I'll concede some if you concede some. I'm going to concede that the dismemberment and vacuum abortions are wrong if you concede that dilation and evacuation abortions and hysterotomies are not, which I doubt you will because that is indeed an odd position to take. Therefore, the fact that certain abortions directly kill the fetus prior to removal has no moral bearing on the situation, as you oppose abortions that are just merely removal as well. So, that's that premise. The last objection, and a fairly common but easily refuted one, is the organ use objection. Basically, the argument goes as follows, the pro-lifer will say, you can't compare donating a kidney or bone marrow to pregnancy because the primary purpose of those organs is for my body, not someone else's body, but the uterus' primary function is to gestate another human being, but my kidneys aren't meant for other people. So I ask one question when prompted with this objection, who exactly is the uterus meant for? Sure, I'll even concede that it's meant for fetuses, but which ones? Just the ones the mother conceives? Or all fetuses? If you're a little confused by that, let me lay out a scenario and try to clarify. Let's say that a woman is impregnated via in vitro fertilization without her knowledge. Kind of like Jane the Virgin, but I'm pretty sure that was artificial insemination. So this is in vitro fertilization, and it's with an egg that's not her own. Meaning it's not her fetus. She's not biologically related with it. So she's pregnant with a fetus that isn't biologically hers. Could she get an abortion? Would you support that? Seems like an odd question. If you're against abortion in all other cases, this would be an odd exception. And I agree. So if you think that she should be required to carry that fetus to term despite it not being biologically her fetus and the process not being natural, then the unnatural nature of a kidney or bone marrow transplant has no moral bearing on the situation, as you just admitted that the uterus is designed to gestate all fetuses, not just the woman's own fetuses, the same way your kidney would be designed to filter all blood, not just your own. So that's the response to the organ use objection. That's the argument. And acknowledging that the organ use objection doesn't hold validity, then in order to say that if the woman is forced to use her body to sustain the fetus, then once the child is born, if the newborn needs a bone marrow transplant or other procedure to survive that only the father can provide, you must be in favor of the state forcing him by law to donate bone marrow or some other part of his body. So now I'm going to transition a bit and talk about in general, why the abortion position or specifically the pro-life position does not fit with a conservative ideology and why, if you agree that in the original scenario, you should not be forced to donate uh, one of your organs to save the life of the person you hurt in the car accident, why therefore this would translate to the default conservative position on abortion. So conservatives are usually deontologists. The two main philosophy types I'm talking about is deontology versus utilitarianism. Uh, deontology, basically, they believe that the morality of actions is determined by the action itself and not the outcome. Therefore, deontologists would not pull the lever in the trolley scenario I mentioned because by doing so, they are intentionally killing someone, and that action in a vacuum is morally wrong. The fact that the result of their action, or rather inaction in this case, is um, it kills five people would be irrelevant. Conservatives also believe in individual rights very strongly, which include inalienable rights. This is hypothetical because I don't believe in gun control due to it being ineffective, but for sake of argument, if banning all guns did save lives, would you be in favor of that? The likely answer from a conservative standpoint would be no. I would be in favor of banning all guns if it saved lives, but that's not the case. So even if it did save lives, you'd likely be against banning firearms because it violates the Second Amendment, and more specifically, the right to self-defense. That is a deontological perspective. So let's extend that to some other rights. The inalienable rights outlined in the Declaration of Independence are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Pursuit of happiness was derived from the 17th century English philosopher John Locke, who originally said life, liberty, and property. And as can be seen by many early documents, Jefferson himself, um, pursuit of happiness was the pursuit to own property, as that is what made them happy. So the right to own property is one of those inalienable rights, meaning it cannot be infringed upon not even to save another person's life. You are not required by law to give up your house to save another person's life, and your body is an extension of your property as you essentially own yourself. Therefore, you have an inalienable right to self-ownership. You cannot be required by law to use your body to save the life of someone else, as I mentioned. Therefore, since the right to self-ownership is inalienable, can the government violate that right to save someone's life? That doesn't seem to follow deontological ethics, which, If you believe you can't violate the rights of one person to save the other, then this is clearly a contradiction. How about masks and lockdowns? Both reduce the spread of COVID-19 and save lives. However, many conservatives believe the government shouldn't be able to mandate either because the government can't violate your individual rights even to save others' lives. Therefore, can the government violate a woman's individual rights to save the life of the fetus? It seems to be logically inconsistent to believe that the government can't violate your individual rights when it comes to those other scenarios, but can do so when it comes to a woman and her fetus. Another argument is because the fetus needs a woman's body to survive, therefore it's entitled to it. But then I quickly ask, from a conservative perspective, do you really believe that needs constitute rights? Health care, housing, and food, just to name a few, are all human needs for survival. But it would be accurate to say that most conservatives don't believe you should automatically be given those just because you need them to survive. So, therefore, through the argument I've presented here, I think you can see that there's a clear contradiction with the conservative worldview and being pro-life. So, through many of my thought experiments and scenarios, I hope I gave you a more holistic way to look at the argument of abortion. I want to make this very clear. They, these are not any arguments I ascribe to. I am a utilitarian. So, if you could prove to me that the fetus was a person from conception and worthy of moral consideration, I would be fully pro-life. I actually would because I believe that people have a responsibility to. Assist others, So that's not the argument I'm taking. I'm basing this argument off of the conservative worldview and something that someone naturally on the right will most likely believe. So thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you find this. And um, other than that, I um, hope you all have a good day and make sure to tune into my debate. I will um, send out the details, but you got a... Uh, early look at what my arguments will most likely be. I may tweak them, uh, throw a little bit of different stuff in there. So make sure you take a look at that. So other than that, stay safe, everyone, and take care.